Thank you, Caleb. We are so blessed to have so many gifted musicians who have a humble heart to just serve the Lord. And we're so thankful that we get to be in on the blessing of their worship to the Lord as they minister to us in song. I trust already, and I think really, actually, I think we, through the ministry of the Word and through the music so far, we could just kind of have a word of prayer and leave, and we will have been fed spiritually and refreshed today. But I get to preach. And it would not be fulfilling for me if I didn't get the chance to share God's word with you. So take your Bibles, join me in the scriptures in Acts chapter 9 and verse 32. We're going to see here Luke, as he's led by the Spirit of God, turns his focus back from Saul's transformation and the beginning of his ministry. And you remember, we looked at last week some of that, those different interims, the intermissions in his life. The first one, when he went to Arabia after he was newly saved. Uh, he left Damascus and was there for three years in Arabia and then came, went to Jerusalem, spent two weeks there, and then under persecution fled to Tarsus at the behest and with the help of the disciples and was there for about 10 years before then Barnabas goes after him and involves him in ministry. And then we really see uh, Paul's story take off in the book of Acts. But for this brief point, the last part of Acts chapter 9, we see uh, that the Spirit of God takes Luke's focus and, and goes back on, on part of Peter's ministry. And it's not just that, that God is, through, uh, through Luke, recording history, but he's written this for our, our admonition. Now we'll see in our passage this morning that what, what Peter is doing is he's going throughout Israel to all the different churches that have been established. Now there's not been many churches established yet throughout Israel, but we know there are some in Judea, some in Samaria, and some into Galilee. And so Peter's going to visit these local assemblies. Uh, there was not yet much administrative organization. Uh, the church is in the early stages as an apostle, one who is specifically appointed by God um, with great spiritual authority. He goes and visits these churches to help them to establish more uh, more administrative uh, structure. Uh, he goes to help make sure that things are on track spiritually and to be a blessing and an encouragement to the churches. And so we, we kind of pick this up in verse 32 where the Bible relates, and it came to pass, as Peter passed through all quarters, there is, he's going throughout Israel to the different churches, he came down also to the saints which dwell at Lydda. Now Lydda was about 23 miles east or west, northwest of Jerusalem. So he's kind of headed over towards the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he goes to this to this town about 23 miles away. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ, make thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt in Lydda and Saren, or Sharon, saw him and turned to the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see in this record, as far as admonition, simply is Aeneas is healed of paralysis. This word, sick of the palsy, means paralysis. It could have been a disease. We don't know. It could have been some sort of incident. I kind of tend to to go along those lines of thinkings because he was an adult man who had been with this sick of the palsy, as the phrase was, for eight years. So probably there was some sort of uh, an event in his life that caused him to be paralyzed. The point is that after eight years, and the reason why that detail is put there is that there's now no hope. 
that he is going to, humanly speaking, there is no hope that he is going to recover. If this had been some sort of a disease, it had been treated for eight years, it's past the time of expectation that he would ever physically recover from this. Also, if it had been uh, some sort of an event, sometimes, you know, people after several months and, and certain things, God, God uses the body to begin to heal um, and the body gets over the shock of whatever the event was and that paralysis goes away with much work. A person can begin to walk again and move about. But after eight years, the, the expectation that that's ever going to happen was gone. Humanly speaking, this was a done deal. And here, Peter, as he comes through, there's a certain man. So I want to remind you that you remember when Peter and John are going up to the temple. This is in the very early days of the church. They're going up the steps towards the temple. There's all kinds of beggars with various needs and they're calling out for alms. And you remember in the story of Peter and John that Peter and John turned to this one man who was lame from birth and they said, silver and gold. Remember Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, arise, take up thy bed and walk. Remember that, again, Peter and the apostles are, are very clear, especially with an unbeliever. This is why I, I kind of fall on the side. Theologians disagree over this, and it's a minor point, I understand. But I believe that this man is not a believer. Because later in the context of the passage, Tabitha is called a disciple, where he's called a certain man. Also, Peter is very careful to make sure that this man understands and everybody around him that it is not of Peter's own power or by his own merit or spirituality that he is somehow mystically healing this man. But this is Jesus Christ, Messiah, God come in the flesh that is healing him of this paralysis. And so just as there were other beggars and God did not choose to heal those other beggars at the temple or even here with Aeneas, I'm sure there were other people in the area that had the same need. They had some disease or something that they needed to be healed from. Maybe they also had suffered in some event and they were paralyzed. But God very specifically and very strategically has Peter say to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And it's interesting because in the language of the Greek, he is saying, even right now, this very instant, Aeneas, Jesus is healing you. In this moment, you are healed, is kind of what is conveyed in the language of what Peter is saying. And, and look at this man. The Bible says of Aeneas that he immediately gets up. He said, hey, listen, get up. And literally he's saying, get up and gather together. So the idea is your mattress that you laid on your pallet or whatever that you had laid on as you were out begging. Hey, gather all that stuff up. Gather up your things. You've been healed. And immediately this man responds by faith. I believe not only believing that what Peter says is true, Jesus is healing you, but that in that moment of that, he also is believing on Jesus as his own Messiah. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, for without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that is rewarder of him that diligently seek him. But I want you to see something else. Because what do you believe is the purpose of God using Peter to strategically heal Aeneas? We find the answer there in the very passage. Many people believed on him in that area. In Lydda and in Sharon, which would have been a, a big, you know, if you know the Shenandoah Valley area, okay, it's kind of that kind of an idea, a very beautiful, uh, uh, fruitful, uh, prosperous, fertile area 
uh, of, of Israel. So all in that plain of Sharon and in Lud in that city, it was the Old Testament city of Lud, all in that area, many believed on Christ because, so apparently Aeneas was pretty well known. People knew his story. And when he is healed, just like the man that was, that, was, that was lame from birth, when he is healed, many people also would have known his story. Not that he was necessarily famous or popular. People just knew about him. And they saw the miraculous work that God had done. And so I want to give you some practical admonition and encouragement this morning. There may be something in your life that you say, I don't know if I'll ever be healed from this. And it may not just be a physical issue. It may be an emotional kind or relational kind of thing. And you've never healed from it. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ can heal that. And you say, all hope is gone. Maybe you have some physical ailment, and maybe it is. Remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? His own testimony was, lest I should be exalted above measure. This is Paul speaking. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I the glory in my infirmities. That word infirmities specifically is speaking of a physical ailment. He says, I will rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There was something in his life, and, Peter, and Paul says, Lord, please remove this. This is agonizing. It is painful. It is constant. I feel like it's hindering me from ministry. But God says, no, matter of fact, in your weakness, as you rely on me in an even greater way, I am going to pour out in abundant measure my grace upon you so that you will be able to do greater things than if you had not had this thorn in the flesh. And I'm going to give you my grace and I'm going to use you and I'm going to perfect my will, my purpose in this, not only in you, in my transformation of your life, Paul, but also in the lives of others who will see your life and your testimony and they will be turned to have hope and faith in me. And so it may not be God's will that he will heal you of that physical ailment, but I'll tell you this, he'll give you his grace so that you can stand so that your life can be gathered together and so that you can, with purpose, accomplish God's will and God's mission for your life. God says to this man, hey, I'm going to heal you. Maybe for some of you, there is no peace in your life. You're like the maniac of Gadara in Mark chapter 5. You are, you are driven. And, and, and you are in misery. No, not on the outward appearance. You might have plenty of money in the bank. You may eat well. You may drive a nice car, have a beautiful home. Life may on all surface appearances look very good for you, but you know that you are suffering with misery because you don't have a peace that you know that you're right with God, that your sins have been forgiven, or that you have any purpose that's going to outlast your life. I tell you what, you can find all of those things in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. You can come to him today. You can receive eternal life. Your sins can be forever given, forgiven. You can have a home in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? By the way, heaven is not all about us wearing these robes with a little halo, having one of these little mini harps sitting on a cloud, and we're bored to death. Heaven and eternity is going to be far more incredible and so much more of an, can I put it this way, an, an epic, eternal adventure and experience than anything you can experience in this life. We're going to get to serve God. We're going to get to fellowship with God. We're going to actually get to see God. You know that's something you can't do with your physical eyes right now? God told Moses, no man shall see me and live. 
And someday we will see God. We will be with him. We will fellowship with him. Things we cannot understand about God. Things that we can't understand about life now. Someday we'll know even as also we are known. God has such wonderful things in store for you. Just like God has something wonderful in store for Aeneas. You say, how do I know if God has that for me? Hey, listen. Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. The Bible says of our Lord would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you want forgiveness, if you want God's peace, if you want to be right with him, God has salvation for you. If God is doing a work in your heart, know that it is God that is working in you. Jesus said in John chapter 6, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. Understand it's the Holy Spirit that will convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. If there is coming in you an understanding and a heavy guilt and understanding that you have sinned against God and that you have come under the condemnation of his eternal justice and you know you deserve it and you understand there's nothing you can do to get your sins forgiven or to cleanse them or get rid of them yourself, realize that's the Spirit of God speaking to you. If you realize I am not righteous, I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ, God is righteous, God is holy. There is a judgment to come upon me. Understand that that is the Holy Spirit. And when there begins to dawn that beautiful light of the truth, God loves me. He loves me so much. He sent his son to die on the cross and shed his blood for me to be buried, to rise again. God loves me so much that he is resonating this in my soul. I'm understanding it. I'm desiring this. I know I need this. Understand it is God is drawing you to his son. And realize that Jesus has done the completed work and all authority is his. And he is ready and willing right now, today, to cleanse you from your sin and give you everlasting life. Just like God had something special and wonderful in store for Aeneas, God has something wonderful and special for you. And by the way, just like anybody who was ever healed by Christ or any of the apostles, If they were given a choice, would you choose to be healed of your physical ailment or have your sins forgiven and have eternal life? They would tell you without hesitation, I'd rather have my sins forgiven than have eternal life and stay paralyzed or stay sick, stay blind, stay lame, whatever. But you know how good God is. That he not only healed them, he saved them. And God will do for you that which you might think to be impossible. For those of us who are saved, let's also remember that with God nothing shall be impossible. The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither is your heavy that he cannot hear. Don't give up praying for and reaching out to those for whom God has given you a burden that they may be sa- might be saved. Now let's look at this, and I want to park on this one for a little bit. Uh, this, this, I have been just enamored by these next few verses. Look at me at verses 36 to 42. Now there was at Joppa which was right over near the coast, just a few miles from Lydda. There was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is Dorcas. So Tabitha is the Hebrew, Dorcas is the Greek, for the same word, same name. This woman was full of good deeds and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. By the way, that's very unusual. We'll get to that in a minute. For as much as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring that 
he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose, went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And all the widows stood by him weeping, which showed the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeling down and praying and turning to him to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand, lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. I love this name. You know what Tabitha, what Dorcas means? It means gazelle. It's talking about beauty. It's talking about grace. I think there's a certain underlying, also secondary meaning of strength and endurance that's there. Tabitha, whether it was a physical beauty, you've ever heard the phrase handsome is as handsome does? Have you ever met a person and you say, that is such a beautiful person and you, have, and you really didn't even notice their physical appearance, except for maybe their countenance? But they were just so beautiful in their spirit, in their demeanor. There was something beautiful. There was something graceful about them. And that was true of Dorcas. Dorcas was literally, the Bible says, full of good works. That word good works means to toil. It means hard work. It means Dorcas was constantly toiling, working hard, putting in great effort. And here in the context of this, this is spiritual ministry. This is not just that she worked really hard in her occupation to earn money for herself. Most Bible scholars believe that Dorcas herself was a widow, which really expands the significance of this passage, if that were true. Now that's speculation, but the arguments which they give are are pretty convincing that most likely Tapitha Dorcas was a widow. But the idea here and the hard work, the context is not necessarily that she was a hard work. Now, folks, we should work hard, should we not? Are we not to work, not with eye service as men pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart? We don't think, do things to please our boss. We do things to please our Lord. And we should be known as hard workers. We should be diligent. But you know, when Paul talks in Romans chapter 12, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, he's talking about Christians who are willing to roll up their sleeves and work till they sweat. Now, if you go outside today, <laughs> it ain't going to take a whole lot of effort for you to start sweating <laughs> as warm and as humid as it has been, right? And by the way, circumstances are never ideal to start serving God. And if you're going to do anything that's going to be impactful, impactful for the kingdom of God, it comes with work. Hard work, toil, and that is a persistent, consistent effort. She was a hard worker. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Bible says, let us not be what? Weary in well-doing. The idea is, because this word for full of good works means to toil until you're exhausted, until you are spent. The Bible says that she toiled, she was full of good works. Say, how can I keep serving God in hard, I mean, just fervent with toil, with hard, continuous serving? How is that sustainable? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We acknowledge our weakness. 
We acknowledge our tendency to selfishness and laziness, to wanting to only serve God half-heartedly instead of wholeheartedly. And we say, Lord, I need your grace to strengthen me. And I understand I need to be fervently serving you spiritually. So, Lord, empower me by your grace. I'm relying on you. Strengthen me to continue to have that cheerful endurance to continue to serve you. Folks, this life is so short. Like the missionary C.T. Studd said in his poem, which has 20-something verses, but the refrain is, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You only have one life, and you don't know how much of your life you have left to serve God. Serve him. Work hard. Serve him. Like Dorcas. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Folks, just because you're not seeing an immediate result does not mean that your labor and your service in the work of God is fruitless. Oh, no. No, no. It it will bear fruit in eternity. We do not always see the results of our ministry. As a matter of fact, we only get to see the proverbial tip of the iceberg. Because you know what would happen to most of us if we saw all that God was doing in us and through us? Our heads would be so fat with pride we couldn't walk out those double doors back there. And so God keeps us in humble dependence on him and he is doing the work and he gets the glory and he lets us see just enough of what he is doing in us and through us to keep us encouraged and help us keep going. But it ought to also desperately encourage us to rely fully on him and his grace. And then in verse 10, Paul exhorts us, let us there, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Matthew Henry commented on this passage and said, Many are full of good words who are empty and barren in good works. But Tabitha was a great doer, no great talker. Christians who have not property to give in charity may yet be able to do acts of charity, working with their hands for the good of others. There are they who are, those are certainly best praised whose own works praise them when the words of others do so or not. And then I want to focus back on this word for alms deeds, the idea of compassionate giving. She was a compassionate giving servant. And we'll see some of what she did. Say, well, how then do I, if I'm going to be pleasing to God, if I want to have a testimony like Dorcas, and Dorcas certainly is an example that ought to challenge us and exhort us to further serve God. These things are written for our admonition, folks. They're not just a record of history. And so if you and I, as believers, are going to rise to the challenge of Dorcas' example, then there needs to be compassionate giving and serving. You say, where do I start? I'm glad you asked. Why don't you start with your care groups? When there's a need within your care group, instead of trusting your care group leader or assistant leader to be the one to take care of it, or when they put out an email that says, hey, we have this need, you ought to jump on it and say, as we have therefore opportunity, let us good to do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith, here's my chance. 
as God reveals to you needs within this church or within the greater body of Christ of Christians within our area. When you see that a missionary has a need, and folks, it may not necessarily be a financial need. It may be something else where you can put forth and use your skill, your ability, your knowledge, your expertise, your connections for the benefit of the kingdom of God and helping assist a missionary to do the work of the ministry wherever they are. That's good works. That's alms deeds. In the context of this passage, I was thinking about this. We have a widow's fellowship ministry. And you know, if Dorcas was indeed a widow and knowing and ministering to the other widows, then ladies, when you meet together for your widow's fellowship and you understand that there are needs, why don't you say, hey, here's an opportunity to be like Dorcas. I'm going to give to that person. I'm going to serve that person. I'm going to help that person. I'm going to help meet that need. I have expertise in that area where they may be lost or confused. I'm going to help give them some clarity and help them walk through that process, et cetera, et cetera. Folks, let's start, let's start putting the word of God into practice. Let's serve one another. Dorcas was a compassionate, giving servant. And then the last phrase of that verse says, which she did. In the Greek tense, it indicates that this was her constant habit. It wasn't once in a while. Oh, once every few weeks, if the care group leader emails a need, then maybe I'll take it, or maybe I'll wait till the next time. Now, I understand you can't meet every need, but you know what? Sometimes I think that we serve God out of convenience rather than with a spirit of sacrifice. And folks, I'm not railing on you this morning. I'm preaching more to me than I am to you. Okay. And I want to apply to you that we really love each other. When folks come here, one of the things that is a a constant thing that I hear is, man, you know what? So many people talk to me. It was wonderful. I've never met as friendly and helpful a church as this. And we do take care of each other. But I'm exhorting us to do more. And I'm exhorting those who are not doing, maybe saying, well, I used to, but I just haven't recently. You know, I think, and I, I'm just being just as transparent with you as I can be this morning. I think COVID changed a lot of people's habits. We got used to staying at home. We got used to, oh, I don't have to prepare for this this Sunday for church. Or I don't have to do that ministry anymore. Or I don't have to have, I can just come to church and sit and enjoy it. I don't have, and so I'm just coming, kind of bow out. I think there's some people watching by way of live stream that used to come faithful and be an active part of corporate worship and ministry here who are bowing to the convenience of just staying home on live stream. And again, I'm not railing on you. I'm just being transparent. I believe that we have some of that going on. Now, God knows the heart. and He knows if some people have extenuating circumstances. But I believe that the ideal in the biblical pattern is that we physically meet together for corporate worship because it's more than just corporate worship. It's also exhorting one another on a personal level. It's fellowshipping one with another. If you men were at the men's breakfast yesterday, one of the things that Pastor Bowman brought out in the Colossians 3, 16 and 17 passage is that even when we sing these wonderful songs from the heart, worshiping God with praise, we are ministering to one another. But folks, Christianity is not supposed to be a spectator sport. We're all supposed to be engaged. And maybe you have some limitations and you say, God knows my heart. I would would love to be, but I'm limited right now. I'll do all I can for the Lord, but man, I sure wish I could do more. That's between you and the Lord. But if you say, you know what? I've just kind of gotten a little bit comfortable. I've allowed the circumstances of what happened in COVID to kind of change my patterns and my involvement. And let the Spirit of God work in your heart. 
and make a commitment to be like Dorcas, being full of good works and alms deeds, which you constantly and consistently as a habit pattern of your life do. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. The Bible says, let him that stole steal no more. This is talking about the transformation. Put off the old man, be conformed in the spirit, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new man. And in verse uh, 28, we see this pattern. Let him that stole steal no more. Literally, stop stealing. Okay? But rather, let him labor. So a person who was stealing, stop stealing. Labor and work. Not only to provide for your own needs, but what does the Bible say? Working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may give to him that needeth. I believe that Dorcas supported herself financially by making garments. But I also believe that she worked a lot of extra making garments for these widows. And when they're weeping and they're showing her the garments which she made for them, I think they're wearing them. It might have been the only outfit they even owned. And I don't think it was second rate. She made it. She made it beautiful. She made it excellent. She made it with that person in mind. These would have been custom-made garments. Clothes were a lot more expensive back then. You didn't have as many garments because it took, they had, to, they had to, to weave them or make them and, and, and custom fit them to you. You just couldn't go to JCPenney or Macy's or somewhere and, and buy a suit or a dress off the rack. So this is an act of love. This is constant ministry. A couple of things I want to mention here. Let's look at the passage just for sake of time. So much more I'd like to park on that. I might come back to that for just a little bit. But I want to get to this point where Peter comes in. In verse 39, then Peter arose and went with them. Two, two men had heard, hey, he's only about three or four miles away. Why don't we go get Peter? And this is an interesting thing because when she died, they washed her body and they laid it in an upper chamber. Normally they would wash the body and then they would have wrapped it. And I believe it indicated, uh, according to what I can understand, um, according to the traditions of the time and even uh, the language of the passage, that what the disciples did was they actually wrapped her body. They washed her body. They would have begun to prepare it with spices. They were wrapping it, okay? And, and then it was laid in an upper, upper room instead of in a tomb. See, the way that they did burials in Israel in Bible times is that they would have, they would, a lot of times it was like in a, in a cave, okay? It was a cutout area beside of a cliff, a rocky area. And then there was like a general chamber, a matter of fact, it's interesting, a lot of them had a little, like maybe two or three foot by two or three foot by about a foot or two deep little area. And what that was, it was so that they would take the body, and they'd usually have a bench, and they would lay the body on the bench, and they could stand down in that little declivity because they would pray like this, lifting up their hands to heaven, and so that their hands wouldn't hit the ceiling or whatever, they'd have those declivities where they could stand up and look to God and they could pray. And then that body would be there, and then they would come back, and they would actually encase the body in lime, and they would put it in a little narrow thing where the body would slide all the way in, and then they would seal it. After a year, the body would be completely decomposed down to the bones, and they would pull those out, and they would put them in an urn, and they would set in that family sepulcher. That was the way they did burials in Bible times. But usually what they do, as soon as the body died, even as they did with Jesus, they would prepare the body. And what do they do with Jesus immediately? They didn't put him in an upper room, did they? What did they do? They put, him in, in, they put him in the sepulcher. All right? They would put him on that, that bench area for a while. But that's not what these disciples did. Possibly, and most likely, because hearing that Peter was just over, not too far away from them, that maybe they, that he would come. And so they sent messengers to come. Maybe God would do a miracle. They weren't, I think, 
necessarily expecting it because who knows the will of God. But I think that they had enough faith to invite him to have Peter come over. And so Peter comes over immediately. He asks everybody to leave the upper room. Look at this. Verse 40, but Peter put them all forth. He put them all out and kneeling down prayed. Peter had everyone leave the upper room. This gave him time then to seek the Lord's face in prayer. It also protected the saints from disappointment if God chose not to raise up Dorcas. This is why Peter prays. He's, God, do you, do you want to raise her from the dead? I'm asking that you do this if it's according to your will. Okay? And so by having all of the, all of the saints leave the room, and it's just him and Dorcas in that, in that upper room chamber, gives him time to pray, to seek God's face, to protect them from disappointment. If God chooses to raise Dorcas back to life, it, it gives her, it protects her privacy a little bit as well. And it also minimizes any sensationalism that might result from such a miracle. Remember that, that Peter is Luke's primary eyewitness source for both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So this would have been personally related by Peter to Luke the physician as Luke is recording the book of Acts, part of a two-volume series for Theophilus. So that's why we know these things. That first she opens her eyes and then she sits up. Well, why then did Peter give her her hand? Because she's wrapped in the grave clothes. Now her arms are not bound. She's able to, Peter's able to extend his hand and she took his hand and then he lifts her up, but she did need some help up. Okay. So, but those details are given, uh, like Lazarus. Remember when, when Christ healed Lazarus? They rolled away the, the, the stone from the sepulcher and he says, hey, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out. So he had some mobility that was very limited because immediately what does Jesus then say to those standing by? Release him from the grave clothes. Right? So that's what happens there. Now, this is an interesting thought. As I was studying through this and reading through uh, one of my favorite scholars, he said, the fact that the Lord raised Dorcas, yet Stephen and later the apostle James remained dead, reflects on God's unknowable waves. After all, it certainly seemed that Stephen and James were more important to the church than Dorcas. Yet we must always trust God's greater wisdom and knowledge in such things. You know what? Sometimes we say, I sure would like to know why. But you know, it's not ours to always understand. It is ours to always trust God. And to know that in heaven, we'll either not need an explanation or God will give us a full explanation and then we will be unable to understand. But I want you to also understand this. Dorcas was not raised for her own sake. Uh, she was, she would, have, would she not have enjoyed heaven much better? I mean, I would think I would. I know I would, wouldn't you? And yet, there were still people within the church that needed to be ministered to, and I believe there's still people to be saved. I believe, again, this is God's primary purpose for raising Dorcas to life, just like Aeneas. Why? Because the Bible says that many in that region believed on Jesus Christ. Just like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many people believed Jesus is Messiah when he raised Lazarus from the dead because what they saw, what he did, and they understood this is God's divine power. This is the Son of God. This is the promised Messiah. And we are trusting him to be our Savior. Dorcas' greatest part of her ministry after she was raised from the dead was the spread of the gospel. You know, even Paul's own attitude was whether by life or by death. I want God to be glorified in me. 
Matter of fact, Paul at one point says, you know, to, to depart and to be with Christ is to far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul's like, I'm, I, am, I am desperately longing to go to heaven and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in an escapist attitude of this life has gotten so bad, I just want to leave all this and go to perfection. No, he just loved Christ so much he wanted to be with him. And he said, but you know what? God's will is that I remain in the flesh yet for a while. God still has a mission for me. But it wasn't so that he could check off every item on his bucket list. No, what did Paul say? Nevertheless, divide the flesh is more needful for, for you, for the brothers and sisters in Christ. God still had a ministry for him. You know, the fact that every one of us are still alive is only a testament to God's mercy and grace and to the fact that God still has ministry for us to do. No matter how limited you may feel. You know, my grandma passed away earlier this month at 105 years of age. For about the last three years, she could communicate some, but she was almost completely blind and completely deaf. She'd begun to go through the stages of dementia. But you know what? God kept my grandma alive even for those three years, and I don't know what the purpose was. But I know that when I get to heaven, I'll understand why God kept grandma alive for those last three years. Because God had a mission for her to fulfill. Even though she was so limited in her influence, according to what I would think, and her abilities, certainly, wheelchair-bound, almost completely blind and deaf. And yet God still had ministry for her to accomplish and a purpose which she fulfilled. And you know, you may feel right now, whatever your circumstances in life, that you are very limited in what you can do. You may feel very limited in who you are. But you know what? We serve a limitless God. And you just be faithful to follow the Spirit of God and the Word of God and to do what you can for him. And God is pleased. And then look at the last verse. This is intriguing. Sometimes we skip over these things. This again, it's not just recorded for history. This is for our admonition. Verse 43. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a, t- a tanner. So why is that a big deal? Right? The fact that Luke mentions his occupation as a tanner ought to clue us in. You see, tanners, by by Jewish understanding, uh, even in the Gentile world, it was not a desirable job. Working with the skins of dead animals. And of course, as a Jew, handling dead animals all the time, you're suddenly unclean all the time. People didn't want to associate that. Even in Gentile towns, a tanner, most, most towns had rules. And one, well, like, like, you know, you, you have uh, your, uh, diff- your different kind of rules, like the neighborhood where you are and stuff like that. You know, you can't paint your house yellow with pink polka dots or whatever, or, whatever, or, or build a bungee jumping tower in your backyard. You had just have certain things within your neighborhood, right? Regulations. And most towns had regulations as well. One of those is that if you were a tanner, you had to be at least 75 feet from the, from the outside edge of the town or outside the, the wall, if it was a walled city. And so even according to Jewish tradition, a, a lady that was a Jew who was engaged to a Jewish man, if she found out that he was a tanner, then she was justified in breaking off that engagement because of that job. So here is Peter who was raised with all of the Jewish law, including the ceremonial law and the dietary law, and he goes to stay with Simon the Tanner. Isn't it interesting? I kind of t- entitled this third point, Simon the Tanner hosts Simon the Apostle. <laughs> and it's really cool because God was preparing Peter to overcome his prejudices. 
to reach Gentiles with the gospel. Because it is at Simon's house that God does the vision and gives him the vision where the sheet is let down with the unclean animals and he hears the voice, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. Okay? And, then that, and, and the sheet goes up to heaven. This, this is repeated three times and finally Peter realizes, okay, Lord. And at the end of that vision at noonday, then that's when the messengers in God's perfect timing arrive from Cornelius, a Gentile, to entreat him to come and to share with him and his household the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter goes. Remember that, that Peter would have been what we would consider the chief apostle. He was the spokesman, right? Um, and more is recorded about the apostle Peter than any of the other apostles. And so he had great, wielded great influence. Now, we know that Paul's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So it's interesting, and I believe this is also part of why God had Luke insert this here in the, in the whole story of Acts is that Paul's going to be the is going to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles but the apostle Peter as being one of those that were the ones who under the direct auspices of the Lord Jesus Christ established the church is having to overcome his prejudices so that the Jewish believers would accept join with and partner with the Gentile believers and so God had him stay in his divine providence with Simon the Tanner. He's already then, in part, overcoming his prejudices because uh, it, it was very unpopular. It was not very pleasant. People would have, would have said, oh, Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner? Guilty by association. Ew, don't go near Peter. He's sullying himself by being associated with Simon the Tanner. And so God is helping him work through that. In James 3.17, the Bible says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of good mercy, of mercy and good fruits. And then get this, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Let me just ask you this. Are you willing to witness somebody who, let's say, for instance, is in the LGBTQ community and is violently uh, offensive against Christianity? Is there somebody else who, because of philosophy or because of nationality or any other reason, you would have a really difficult time showing the love of Christ, ministering to, accepting as a brother or sister in Christ? I wrote down two questions, and these I've had to think on myself and pray through. And I want you to be as serious in your consideration of this as, as I am. First, are there still prejudices you need to overcome by God's grace for the sake of the gospel? Who are we who have been saved by the grace of God, and that's the only reason we're saved? And it's not for any other reason that God loved us and God worked in us and saved us, that we are who we are and where we are. How dare we in any way be so prideful that we would sit in judgment onto who should be saved and who should not, who should have an opportunity to hear the gospel and who should not, who we should extend our love to and our effort towards reaching with the gospel or not. Are there still prejudices you need to overcome by God's grace for the sake of the gospel? And then number two, are there still Christians with whom you hesitate to fellowship? 
think sometimes we're afraid that by fellowshipping with a believer who's not just like us, we're afraid we're compromising. And we don't have to compromise our principles, our personal standards of conduct and living in order to fellowship with other truly born-again believers. And we should not allow these things to cause us to hesitate in fellowshipping with them or ministering to their needs. For someday, we will be enjoying eternity together with Jesus Christ. And you know, maybe we'll find out we weren't quite as right as we thought we were. And they might not have been quite so off base as we thought they were. So let's be careful to love God, to love each other, to love unbelievers. And let's ask God to help us. If there are any prejudices, if there's somebody that'd be hard for us to witness to, a believer that'd be hard for us to fellowship with, then maybe God's revealing to us, like James was confronting the believers, maybe there's a little partiality and hypocrisy in our lives with which we need to deal. So, Aeneas, God still works miracles. Jesus Christ is still saving souls, and that is the greatest miracle of all. This is the healing of the soul. Spiritual, eternal life given to those who are spiritually dead. As Dorcas was raised back to life, and God was using her, what a challenge her life is, but she was not raised for her own purpose. And the fact that we're still alive, preserved by God's grace in this temporal life, means God still has a mission for us, no matter how limited we may be. But let's also, like Dorcas, not be settled to be mediocre, mediocre in our service to the Lord. But let us be full of good works and alms deeds, which we constantly practice. And let us, like Peter, allow God to take us down the trail of spiritual growth in overcoming prejudices and hesitancies we may have in our life where we would be showing partiality or where we would be being hypocritical. May God transform us into the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God save those who have not yet come to know his son Jesus as their Savior. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your constant ministry and your example during your public ministry on this earth. Through that three and a half years, from early to dark, you were constantly ministering and then spending all night in prayer, praying for your disciples, praying for the accomplishment in every person's life of the mission for which you, Father, sent your Son. Lord, maybe some folks here today who are hurting and they see no way out of their circumstances, but they realize that you are with them in the circumstances. And as you raised Aeneas back from being paralyzed when he had lost all hope of ever having any help or change, may those who are in that same sense hopeless, having given up hope or not expecting you to do a work, to have that hope rekindled in their heart. And yet ultimately to be surrendered to your will. And if it is not your will to raise them up or to cure whatever that issue is, to know that your grace will meet their need and enable them to minister successfully even in the midst of that limitation, that trial, that difficulty. 
Thank you, Lord, for the challenging example of Dorcas. May we, like Dorcas, be full of hard work service for one another, giving, serving, with compassion. And may that be a constant habit of our lives. May you and your grace strengthen us and give us that endurance and wisdom that we need to so minister. And Lord, like Aeneas and like Dorcas, may our lives, whether by life or may death, may many be drawn to Jesus Christ. And Father, as you helped your apostle Peter lead the church in overcoming prejudices and hypocrisy, Father, we see you took him in stages. You were preparing him first by even staying with Simon and then through the vision and then preaching to Cornelius and and also in seeing Gentiles get saved to where then there is an affirmation by the apostles later on to many of the Gentiles who are being saved to be included within the one body as Paul writes about in Ephesians. There is one body. Because Lord, anybody who is saved is only by your grace. And so we pray today you would do a mighty work in our hearts in Jesus' name. In a moment, we'll stand. Our pianist will play a hymn of invitation. The pastors will be in the front. God has so spoken to your heart as a believer, and you say, I just really need to cement this decision in my heart, make a commitment, a definite commitment. I would encourage you to be willing to come and kneel here at the front and pray. Or if you would like to sit at the front because you can't kneel and get back up, come and sit on the front pew and pray. If you need somebody to counsel you from the word of God or encourage you from the scriptures, please come. If you're not sure where your soul would spend eternity, 1 John 5.13 says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. Come to one of us pastors and say, I want to know I have eternal life. Well, someone take the word of God, a trained Bible counselor, take you to a quiet, private place show you in a few minutes the plan of salvation from God's word. Answer any questions you have. You can call on Christ by faith today and leave here knowing, absolutely confident, that you have eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. You will spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have that peace and that assurance and that purpose that you are longing for so much. Shall we stand right now as our pianist begins to play? Would you come? <laughs>